0: You are listening to the spacecraft podcast: Conversations on How Innovative Design can transform the workplace environment." This podcast is brought to you by them with host Dan Mosscroft.: So we're introducing to the show today uh, Will Sandy. Um, I've known Will for a while. Welcome, first of all. <laughs> Thanks, Dan um, to be here. It's good to see you again. Actually, it's been a while. Uh, I think for me, the, the great thing to talk about for me today, and, and we have just chatted through your presentation as well, is what you do, what you are, and, and when we first met, because we talked about doing this a couple of years ago before the COVID struck. I think when I first met you, we came off the back of one of the uh, uh, Place Labs events. Met you a couple of times at that, and we sat down with Mike from McGregor Coxall, and we were having a pint in the pub around the corner. I think it was the Griffin, and I remember sitting there, and you had. About a million different ideas just like popping out, bang, 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 bang. And there's this really entrepreneurial way of thinking. Of it. And that really interested me. And I thought, I've got to interview Will. And then we sort of chatted a few weeks back. But do you want to introduce what, who you are and what you do? Because I guess the sort of package to frame you is, is, a, is, is landscape architect, but you do so many other things, right?
1: Yeah, I mean, it's a good question and one I'm still playing with. I trained as a landscape architect. I teach landscape architecture at Greenwich and recently became a fellow of the Landscape Institute, which is the highest sort of regarded point you can get to in the Institute. The youngest, I believe, is a fellow, right? I am, yeah, the youngest. And I think that's a really interesting point, bringing the sort of age down of people in those kind of positions to kind of start to reframe things and complement their kind of, those who've been in the game for quite a long time. Yeah, I guess I use landscape architecture as a means to frame work and just sort of explore things that sit within the landscape both in the urban and rural context. Working with people I guess is probably where I play best sort of seeing how people work and operate within spaces and just been through a pandemic so well-being and health is a big kind of thing. Moving away perhaps from GDP focused kind of baselines
0: to a more kind of holistic approach to
1: living both in the city and in the countryside.
0: It seems to have moved for me uh, since the pandemic from more of a tick box exercise where people want to do a bit of greenery or biophilia to actually genuinely seeming to care, which is nice to see. I mean, the podcast itself is, is meant to be about workplace design. I think what I really like about you is the fact that you just sort of, you don't take the lateral direction on anything I've seen you produced. And I think it's, what I like to talk about is, is how you approach projects, how you approach problems. How you sort of unpick things and and, and even down to your approach on stakeholdering and things like that. Because I think there's a lot of interesting things we can learn from designers from you, from your approach, really. A few projects that stand out, probably your most well-known one, I guess, and certainly the one if you were to look you up, is across the internet, is the, um, the Catalyst Cube. Yeah, and I I was thinking about it on my
1: cycle here this morning And that the project was initiated by the British Council, focused on sort of reframing spaces in Caracas, Venezuela. And reframing spaces since then, back in 2018, when I won the project, has sort of almost become a a sort of de facto mantra. It's looking at spaces differently from a fresh perspective. And in a country like Venezuela, which is going through tricky politics, economic times, Mm. um, welfare, and the project was looking at how we kind of Regalvanize the communities within the city of Caracas, get them back out on the streets but within what is fairly dangerous and tricky times. So the first thing I did was create a viewfinder because I'm living in London, I'm not in the city, I'm not even in the continent. Simple one you know like you had for art projects back in the day you'd sort of frame up a view and then that would be your kind of point of reference and so I worked out that the paper sizes in South America were different to the UK, so that was my first hurdle. But <laughs> tried to create something that was pretty easy for them to print out, cut out, and then go and use Instagram, Twitter, etc., social media to build sort of a presence before we got there, just to see how they, the everyday citizens, the students I was working with, and the consultants saw the city and the problems and the and the good things. Actually, is what we could celebrate. Then moving over to there the first time I went. I've never had an armored car which was an interesting uh, start to a project Um, and at one point I did have my own armed security walking around like I was some pop star which again is quite an odd experience but it was a fascinating journey through what was what is a very interesting country and I don't want to kind of wash over the problems that they're facing Um, but my job there was to kind of work with communities to give them some sense of joy within their day
0: How do you go about that then I mean obviously you got the language barrier everything else how did you start to unpick what their requirements are and how to sort of get them involved in things I mean all my work is collaborative I'm, I
1: have my own studio but we either build a team or we plug into teams and so there fortunately I had uh, incursiones who are architects based in the in the country and fondacion de which is the foundation of sort of public space and the British Council so through their eyes and then the students from the architecture school, which I definitely think you should, anyone should look up. It's a UNESCO World Heritage Site designed by Carlos Villanueva, an architect from London, actually, but he was born here and moved over there, working with them to see how they saw spaces. So I wasn't able to go into a lot of the places through to due to the sort of danger and security, but I was able to understand how they experienced space. And so it was designing without a location or a site-specific entity. And so that's where the Catalyst Cube came in. It was building on ideas I've had before about modularity, spaces that can be refigured and adaptive. So we developed the cube being an easy, replicable replicable object, stock sizes, working with the resources they had. we talking to the architects. Sometimes they have to rework a whole design because the production of certain gauges of steel won't be ready for six months. So they'll go, okay, we were planning on this, but we have to rework it or we have to make up those pieces. Mm -hmm. So it's quite interesting just, again, trying to design with... The response of what's available. Um, Luckily, now we've got Brexit, we can work with the same parameters. (laughs) Six um, months for steel. (laughs) I've been been doing that this week. Um, Some of my suppliers on another project here in London. And yeah, the whole wonderful Brexit thing, I don't want to dwell on that. We could go on that for ages, but the costs are astronomic and the access to things is Awful, but we work around it, and I guess that's how you adapt as a designer. Yeah. So the cube lands in a place effectively, it's like a Rubik's Cube of a pavilion. And I wanted to introduce green, a green roof and try and talk about water harvesting, uh, biodiversity. In a country that's so well equipped to look at green infrastructure, it's you know, there's a mountain at the back of the city that's their kind of baby, if you like, the Avila, and then you've got high rainfall, huge sun, and yet because it's been such an oil-dependent country for years. They still have sat with that, but through the lockdown and then with COP26 and various other things, I did some more projects with them. So, yeah, the green roof started with it. Then we, effectively the sides all fold open in a multitude of configurations to provide staging, um, exhibition space, various teaching applications. We had 3D mapping of it. We We had theatre performance within it. Um, there's a basketball hoop on the outside, so when the thing gets locked down and becomes quite safe at night, you can still play with it, and it becomes this sort of visible, instant focal point within a community. It's now in its second location, and the idea is that you test ideas in one location, and I sort of developed this idea called the three in, so they inform, influence, and inspire. You create these kind of catalytic ideas, and in architecture and landscape, we still don't proto- prototype like you do in fashion or industrial yeah. design or car design so why i uh,
0: that's it's, the testing's lacking yeah I, there's the amount of beautiful buildings i've seen that don't get used or the classic where you've got a track of path through the green grass and whatever
1: we're, we're, i mean we're really good at putting together beautiful documents and finished entities but actually the process is missing the point where and i guess some developers are cottoning onto it with meaningful meanwhile and yeah. those activation points but again it often becomes beer and burgers and for those who are coming in rather than those that pre-exist a bit akin to the sort of conversations of jane jacobs in new york with robert moseley coming through with his road it's celebrating the existing communities and not just putting new in front of an existing place or, or town so sort of place making but sort of place saving as well and sort of place caring for those that are existing and having a kind of conversation and so the cube I've presented to developers here in Europe, and the idea would be that it sort of starts to test ideas in real time at the threshold of the development site and the existing community, both business and residents, to see how the spaces could be used. And then you've got a live data set, and you can hybridise it with technology as well, so you can start to capture data and citizen science, so you can get a really informed decision. But the, the client gets an asset, so they can reuse this thing over and over again to continue to test and it's surprising how things get used. One of the biggest surprises in Caracas was the need for a um, piñata hook, <laughs> which obviously <laughs> course, yeah. in the UK yeah, I had never my anticipated, yeah. but for most yeah. big celebrations and birthdays, a piñata is an essential thing. So we had to quickly retrofit that so that a piñata hook could accommodate those wonderful sort of celebrations. And then there's peer-to-peer community learning. So when it goes to the next site, you get the first community, hopefully, if they're engaged, to go, to, go along and say... Oh yeah, we thought that too, but it doesn't work. A surprise, however, was this thing. Mm. And so you get that wonderful sort of learning project and you don't waste time. So it kind of continually grows, but it also provides a symbol of change. So when people, the carnival's coming to town, in this instance, the Catalyst Cube is moving into the location. And then another adaptation we started to talk about with a client in Australia was, what about these cultural institutions here in London? We've got the Tate and the V&A, but they are still quite exclusive. Could you have mini takes that go into Croydon, Tottenham, Basingstoke, Reading, wherever? So places that people would come from and have their mini version that they can curate and play with. And Mm -hmm. then when they do come to town, oh, we've got one of those in our neighbourhood. We can cross that threshold. It is for us. We are welcome. So it's got a multitude of ideas and it's continually developing, but the kind of modular theme is something that, has always been part of what I do. I've, I've
0: loved. It's constant evolution. Actually, I think every pitch we've worked on, whenever we've done a proposal for a, a placemaking thing outside of either a residential or even a workplace thing, we've shown this as an idea of like, look, this could be anything you want. to get will involved. It could be, you know, an auditorium. It could be somewhere you can do presentations. It could be somewhere you can just go and have a bit of relaxing time, or it opens up and does all these things, and people get excited about it. Which one of those things that just you know you can imagine getting value engineered right at the last minute. And you even though it's going to add so much, it's got so much lovely value. So, what 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 were the what did you notice the, the changes with the changes at Caracas? Then, what 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 was the outcome of dropping the cube in? Obviously, got all these lovely things of peer to peer learning and stuff. I guess the, the first thing is the instantaneous nature of it. Yeah,
1: five minutes it's not there, five minutes it's in. And something we did a lot with the edible bus stop again is that you don't know what you've got till it's gone. So, putting mm-hmm. things in, testing an idea, taking them away gives people the opportunity to go. I didn't actually like what they did, but I've never looked at this space as potentially a this mm. or a that. So that first instance of just kind of dropping in this kind of alien object and then watching the community evolve with it, you kind of show them the ropes and go, well, these open like this. You know, this bit can do that. You can have a canopy. It kind of extends to be bigger than the sum of its parts. And then you just watch it evolve. And I think that's the pleasure of doing these kind of pieces of work is that you hand it over. We're not, you're not precious about what they how it's supposed to look yeah you get quite a few nice photos but ultimately it's how the community adopt it and then they can prove that the necessity of a different thing it might be the elderly community meet for coffee at 11 o'clock on a Tuesday it might be the mother's meeting at one o'clock on a Thursday the kids might come and play basketball at four there might be the need for people coming and having a few nice drinks at six o'clock after work or even in the city of London we started to look at perhaps greening the last mile in the city and how you might turn some of these kind of modular systems into collection points. So it it makes that drudgery of going to the local shop at the end of the day to get your Amazon parcel or whatever into a kind of social activity. So you might then go and have a coffee and grab your parcel and you meet your neighbours. So it's that social cohesion. And so in Caracas, it was about critical mass. If you can create a destination, and it was inspired by Run Caracas, which was, I think, a, a woman or a man who... Liked jogging but the uncertainty of the safety and security in the area they developed critical mass so they said "Well, we'll meet here at four everyone can join we'll run this loop you do five you can do ten but we'll make sure you're back in a location so it's safety in numbers and the client from the british council messaged me this week and she said she'd been to the new site which is one of the largest favelas in south america she said it's still in a good state no one's really damaged it there was a group of children having a lesson within within the so it's already been adopted again by a community that yeah. is completely different to the first location, which was more kind of commercially led in a kind of very nice bit of the city. And this is now in a very different part of the community.
0: It's funny, just a learning I experienced quite early on, maybe five, or six years ago, we were working on a project. And I wasn't in the contractor, but they pointed out that the project we were working on, was one of the first times they hadn't seen any defe- like graffiti and stuff in the toilets It's because it was a well-run project and everyone was really well-respected and looked after. And they looked after the space, whereas he said that he'd worked on projects project before where everyone was getting treated badly. <laughs> and surprise, surprise, there was graffiti damage everywhere and no one cared about the site. And I think just having that object there and not being defaced, damaged and all the other stuff, you saw that the communities got around it, they, they, they obviously care about it. You touched on edible bus stops there, and I guess that comes back a bit. Again, it's a community sort of facing thing. The idea is like getting people involved in transforming spaces. So, the edible bus stop. I can remember when, when someone told me about the edible bus stop. I saw like a picture of a large chocolate bus stop that you can get your teeth into. So, tell us a little bit about the edible bus stop. Yeah, so my colleague Mac and I, or a very good friend of mine now,
1: she lives in Stockwell, South London, had um, spotted a planning application to turn this rather unassuming sort of neglected bit of council land into two bookend houses you know like the yeah. kind of developer speak I mean we ended up meeting the developer he was quite a nice chap and once he realized we'd kind of created a swell of the community that once they knew it was going had realized that this was actually a natural breathing space in the community it was the end of two Victorian terraces number one at Dithner Street and number 49 alford Road that were bombed in World War Two. So it naturally created this kind of opening opposite the um, South London and Mortley Mental Health Unit. And so we just sort of said, look, you know, this is going to potentially be developed. Shall we have a conversation? And the community all rallied. And I'm probably shortening the story, but we ended up with 40 people on Sunday afternoon, kind of stood there with spades and forks going, well, what do we do now? <laughs> well, why don't we tidy it up first? So we clean the rubbish, we prep the beds. And at the end of the day, we obviously had tea and cake and sort of said, you know, what should we do? Well, why don't we come back next week and we'll plant some bits and bobs? And so everyone turned up with sort of house plants and random pots that had outgrown things and this kind of hodgepodge planting started to happen and it just sort of naturally started to evolve. And someone had noticed that someone had planted a bit of edible plants at the top and so we started to build an idea around the fact that you... Call it a garden and it has a sense of ownership and belonging. You call it a park and there's a sense of management and authority and you're there under a permission. Food growing in itself is something that you have, you take ownership of again, you know, there's a delayed gratification, you're sort of getting something out of it. And you also bond with a community because you have a vested interest. Whereas a rosebush in, say, Regent's Park is a beautiful thing and it's nice to have a wander around, but ultimately it's someone else's thing. Yeah. You're not taking part. I've been there with the kids.
0: Don't touch that. It's
1: not yours. Um, then we were fortunate um, through one of Mac's connections to get a job lot of very beautiful organic plants from the Duchy, from Clarence House. And that, again, gave us a little bit more PR. Mac was from the fashion business. I obviously come from a kind of left field landscape an urban design field and a background. So we started to join the dots and how we might raise the profile of what seemingly could have been some tyres and some pallets on the side of the road. And I had done a lot of work in my postgrad, sort of looking at how you elevate these kind of urban design community-led projects beyond socks and sandals. And I have nothing against those things and they're kind of great opportunities to grow food, but this was a public round opportunity where we had to up our, up our game. So we quickly got a hold of the the council, fortunately, the head of highways at the time had an allotment and loved growing, so he happened to, to help us get things done. We then put forward for the Mayor of London's Pocket Parks. We were the first one to get built. We used recycled materials from the local area, finding the old curbstones, so we kept a lot of the materiality and that kind of heritage. But we did spend three years doing the kind oh, of engagement. Man. And wow. because we believed in the project and we didn't know what we were doing, we made a lot of mistakes. We made a lot of kind of great opportunities. But yeah, you don't get that opportunity to spend that much time getting to know your community, getting to know the stakeholders, yeah. the kind of council, the mayor's office, etc. cetera. So we, we joined the dots. And through conversations, we were just like, how many bus stops are there in London? 17,800 thereabouts. So if 50% of those were greened, and, you know, most people go, but it's just a bus stop. Well, actually, this was 10 metres by sort of 40 metres, so it's sizable. Could you start to create the kind of ideas around the 15-minute city, which I know is bringing up debate at the moment, but using existing infrastructure, so bus routes and transport networks, to create community hubs at each one, that hmm. not only connect people with nature or green space or food, but also connect each other. And so there was only one bus route running past the edible bus stop in Stockwell, the 322, which goes from Clapham Common to Crystal Palace. So we just started hopping on the bus and going to talk to different communities. We worked with uh, space makers who were then just off the back of Brixton Village going up to West Norwood to help them reimagine their high street and create the West Norwood Feast. So we did some community consultation with them and they helped us identify another site on the route. We did some work at Crystal Palace to Transition Town. They helped us identify another site there. We started to work with bids, and then that's when the Edible Bus Stop started getting caught up in developers who were going, oh, I love what you're doing, can you green the edge of our building site, construction site, so we ended up working in the Olympic Park, Batsy on the edge of Nine Elms Market. And so the kind of brownswell. and someone once said that we were at the, ven- the vanguard of vegetable activism, um, <laughs> and that we were the kind of the green low line of London working with sort of more humble bus routes, but... As I've gone on, it's sort of started to understand that you have to have this kind of bottom-up approach, yeah, but with a yeah. strategic view. And that's where yeah. work I started to have conversations with Mike at mcgregor Coxall, which is how we sort of met. And looking at those master plans and going, well, how do you make meaningful meanwhile opportunities fit and mesh so that they become the permanent? And it comes back to the informing and influencing again. A lot of these are kind of, as you say, we've tick boxing before and we're moving hopefully to a bit more kind of honest and engaged design. But I, I now think if, meaning, meanwhile, an opportunity comes, then that should set the tone for the future of the development yeah. and become the kind of gateway and kind of catalyst. You see, I'm using the same words. It's all kind of brought in to build in a community that exists. So yeah. I would say if you could just get one tree in a meanwhile project to be part of the beginning of an avenue in a master plan than the community that have helped plant that when Johnny was 16 or whoever. You know, when he's 26, he comes back and that tree that he planted with his brother is now part of the avenue that he goes to have a beer with his mates in
0: the new block of flats. And that sense of ownership, I think, and belonging and all the good stuff that goes with it. We've got, on our street, there's, there's just somebody who plants nice flowers around, around trees. in the And... You know there's people in that community that will take the ownership and they'll really go for it, you know, and, and then pull other people with them when they're given the opportunity. It's such a lovely project. I'm, I'm glad it's really growing as well, like, like, no pun intended, but, you know, the fact that it, it does seem to be nicely spreading out across London and, and it, it, it's something that captures, something that people can get their head around really quickly. Well, we
1: all eat, that's what we always said. Yeah. And, you know, the first edible bus stop is over 10 years old, which ages me a bit in this world but you know it's still managed by the community the the hospital have become a little bit more engaged which is great so you're starting to see the kind of relationship between health rehabilitation and nature Mm. that's from the nhs prescribing forest bathing to other kind of ideas and i think there's an honest biophilic relationship that we all have when we come back to workspace people work more efficiently they're happier the staff uptake is better if they're in a greener more rich environment and the same as tenancies for a sales and rentals people either spend more or rent quicker because it's a nicer environment mm. people dwell more i was listening to radio 4 this morning and they've just uh, removed 100 mature trees in plymouth overnight in the last oh, 48 hours and you're going well trees don't get to their optimum kind of value both from a beneficial environmental benefit to also the economic value until they're at least 50 years old and 50 percent of trees don't make it past 10 years old and the economics behind it is that it's currently cheaper to replace than to uh, maintain. So this whole shift needs to happen. And I think the buy-in of growing and greening needs to shift slightly. But yeah, that's that's why we started what we do. And back then it, we were kind of unknown. And that's why what we were doing wasn't deemed as landscape architecture or urban design we were called activists or environmentalists and we were slightly out out of the picture and now it's was it it
0: urban tactician or something i heard tactical tactical urbanism and various
1: other things and urban acupuncture and all of these kind of buzzwords i mean ultimately i don't really care what you call me we're in the room we're having a conversation we know what we want to do and hopefully we can find a way to do it
0: what i really like about your approach it just feels very entrepreneurial if that's the right word i think it's it's very inventive, very creative, and it's definitely not something you just normally stick a badge of what people typically expect to be landscape architecture to. To that point, in fact, um, your tiny parks project—you know—I love the fact that you see little opportunities everywhere. Tell us a little bit about tiny parks.
1: So we've obviously seen automation coming through and the removal of people, like mm-hmm. actual humans, on our transport network, and so not that we'd want to get remove them. We'd you know we'd love to. I'd, I'm quite an analogue human being on the whole and I'd rather see someone than talk to a machine or tap a card and I think we've lost that connection again which our work hopefully brings back but the opportunity came about to reimagine the ticket offices on the underground we had an amazing client, Mac and I at the edible bus stop, met Anne Gavagan Gavanna, sorry, sorry Anne Um <laughs> never get it right but um, she's, she works sort of within the surprise and delight of the underground and often the underground is just about getting people from A to B but she had the foresight to reimagine these spaces and so gave us a sort of almost blank brief of, you guys do green stuff, what would you do? Some of them are being taken up for collection points, some of yeah. them are being turned into other kind of more commercial operatives. But she had these few spaces, all of them with green or park within the title. So the first one piloted was St. James's Park. So we developed this kind of modular, again, easy to install off site construction because you've got limited time to get in there and get out there. Stood there mm-hmm. with the. Uh, the underground boys in their big orange jackets and us in our kind of rather, rather more kind of humble <laughs> high-vis <laughs> and um, small, small vehicles rather than their big trucks and plant, going in with these kind of mirrored boxes where we basically designed a contained unit with its own light, with its own water, its own drainage. And the idea was that it kind of created these glimpses into worlds. And Max gone on to develop them, and so we worked out that we'd create an environment that was too successful. So plants were growing beyond <laughs> the tanks and as much as the staff in the stations loved them the maintenance was getting a bit much but you do just have this kind of quick biophilic connection as you cross through the gates
0: they look lovely they're gorgeous like
1: this little flash of green gorgeous and it's something we've kind of continued to have a look at and again talking about the work you guys do why can't you have them in the office, Mm. you know, simply Mm. as a part of a wall, you could have a green space, it would be low maintenance, the brief for TFL was no maintenance, because, you know, they've got enough going on without having to deal with some plants. And it's, you know, security based, etc. But well, you know, hotel lobbies, all of these spaces where people are, where the connection perhaps isn't as good to green space as it should be, just introduce a small green box. Mm. You know, it's quite simple. I'm not, you know, making it into anything very, like, super detailed or designed, but the, the the theatre behind it, adding the mirrors, playing with the plants, creates this illusion that you're in this immersive environment. And so that successfully just creates an easy way to get a bit more green on people's daily journeys. And I think with the current economic crisis, we we see people who are both time poor and economically poor. And so they don't have the luxury of going to the big parks for days out or having often living in green green kind of neighbourhoods. So if we can just po- populate or puncture a tiny bit of greening
0: on there daily walk to work or to school or wherever they're going i think it all helps you touched on analog there's two things you touch on there like talk about one's 15 minute city but i can't get my head around why people would be angry about a 15 minute city but secondly uh, touching on analog and obviously everywhere talk, people are talking about chat gtp you've got mid journey uh, i'm kind of intrigued especially in the reba world of competitions where that's going to take us but i noticed actually back in 2019, not twenty two Yeah, 2019. You in the in the Landscape Jur- Institute Journal, you had an article about how projects can be grown from the bottom up. But there was a tiny bit right at the end. it was talking about AI and how uh, you still believe that like the human is going to push forward. But I'd love to get your take on AI and how you think it's going to start to feed into what we do
1: creatively. We were talking about this yesterday. I teach at Greenwich on the Masters in Landscape and BA in Urban Design, and it's you know, you, I've seen some amazing drawings where people just say, make me a Richard Rogers' S city design, and then you get these amazing renders. We were trying to work out perhaps that would be the start of a brief, and mm-hmm. then can you deconstruct it to break it down into com- componental parts? You can vision whatever you want, the street outside where we're sat now. Make this a great green and lush environment, but also, you know, meets traffic and blah, 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 so we can yeah. have a functional city. I'm not trying to close every road, because at the moment we need to get things moving. And then deconstruct it. I think that would be the exciting thing. How do you break down the componental parts to make it actually realisable? I think it's going to help us. It does worry me a bit. Like all of these things are great in the right hands. Get them in the wrong hands and we're in big trouble. And you know, then you get the conspiracy theorists and others who start to play. And, and that's that's my fear. And I think I'm very much about I don't have a website. I have never had one. I'm, everyone tells me where's my website. But I'd rather just say, give me a ring and I'd meet you for a chat and we can chat through the work. That's that's how I've always operated. And it might be a bit old school. I do need to get a website. But at the moment, I'm a bit fearful of AI. But the hybrid landscape, I think, is where I see there's an opportunity for both engagement and interaction with, with neighbourhoods. So if you're in the public realm, have some kind of System where you can go, well, what's happening? How is it programmed? What's going on? Get people aware, or even through engagement. We did a lot in the lockdown where we weren't able to meet people, so we had to adopt new methods of communication. So you'd set up Mm -hmm. online systems, online forums. I've never seen so many people joining Zoom calls to chat about their neighborhood. And quite often it then brought out others who would either not physically be able to join you in a kind of town hall in, in public space or those who didn't feel comfortable and were much happier sort of sitting in their desk and having a chat. So we need to create that hybrid landscape and that starts to fall out in the work that Mike and I started talking about, which was the smart carpet. So having that kind of adaptive landscape where you can kind of program the street. You have a sort of interactive landscape. You can play with it on your phone, turn it from a vehicular access to a catwalk in the space of an hour just by reprogramming the kind of interactive tiles. And I think AI will probably have a
0: benefit to that. It's something I'm, I need to explore. You touched on something there that I think is quite interesting. They've, it's very good at, if can you do me something like this? I've tested it out in a few pitches, where well, not pitches, projects we've been working on, where we, I've been trying to get it to help me visualise something, where I've already got the concept, so I'm prompting it, that I want it to look like, what if it's in this style of photographer, and things like that. It's very good at emulating that stuff. Where I've really struggled is where I've got a very clear picture of what I want it to do. And I'm trying to prompt it down a route to get me a visual that I've got in my head. I think generating random images, it's great. And I guess out of 100 images, you're going to find something that's pretty cool, right? The interesting thing for me with chat, is whenever anyone's talking about, do you think AI is going to be good or bad? I think that at the minute it's emulating humans and humans inherently (laughs) just quite shit, aren't they?
1: (laughs) I mean, I guess the conversation I was having yesterday was, will it produce things that aren't, capital driven will it create a kind of a more ambient background kind of idea would it embrace indigenous kind of ideas that aren't driven by commercial entities you know you've got there's an amazing book called low tech with julia watson and she goes around the world looking at um indigenous skills and local knowledge and the the book's called low tech because low tech is seemingly kind of lesser than high tech but tech is uh, traditional ecological knowledge and so in java and, and indonesia there's a couple of bays and a lot of dutch engineers have been brought in to sort of look at the flooding great but one size doesn't fit all yeah. so my my wonder is the indigenous people on the other side are looking have been responsibly managing the way they live and interact with nature and they don't have the same flood risks or problems i wonder whether ai is therefore coming at it from a western north hemisphere but kind of approach and isn't able to see and that's something I'm I'm open to conversation and it's not either or but I just wonder whether it's just going to be a capitalist driven model that only creates further consumption in a world where consumption is at the moment working
0: against the fact that we're in a climate emergency. So one of the things I found really interesting there's the 15 minute city I'd love to get your take on that because of your, your your involvement with the Landscape Institute and I, I genuinely, I haven't dug into this enough personally to, to know much about it, but I'm really surprised there's any aggression towards the idea of living in a 15 minute city. I just wanted your take on that.
1: I mean, I think change, transition, whatever we want to call it is always going to raise eyebrows. I think the idea and the way I've been trying to, I've been trying to have conversations with people and there's certain demographics perhaps that have issues with it. And I'm not going to go into the kind of comparatives to Hunger Games and the various kind of regime kind of ideas of what what it could become. I think that's fairly nonsense but what it's trying to do is essentially go back and i'm trying to frame this in a way that's sort of accessible to all that it's just like the good old days you know people reference they like walk to the shops you know there's a butcher a baker a candlestick maker to use that kind of rhyme but doesn't everyone just want to shop at the end of their street wouldn't that be nice i
0: think i think that did start to happen with covid as well like all our butchers and stuff charge obscene amounts of money for meat locally but i still use them after covid i think The the
1: problem is that there's more of us now. If we all drove to that local shop, the the roads would be clogged, we wouldn't be able to. So it's just trying to encourage a change in attitude to go, well, if the shop is there, and maybe it's the village pub that becomes the sort of local shop or the community centre, it's not only providing you with a kind of way to get products, but it's also providing certain people with the first and only connection they might have in a day. So... The idea of the low-traffic neighbourhoods and all of those things, yes, they cause inconvenience, and I don't think we're there yet. It does displace certain traffic and blah, 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 but we have to find better modes for people to move, and whether that's more cycle infrastructure, which is, I guess, probably the most controversial, but, you know, in Germany you can pay a certain fee and travel on all their kind of transport across the country for a month. Here, at the moment, I you know, I drive, I'm not going to say I don't because you know that would be dishonest but at the moment I go and work outside of London and it's cheaper for me to drive than it is to get the train
0: yeah same I was looking at train tickets up to Oxford and I was thinking about driving up there which is ridiculous
1: so you know until we're kind of incentivized and I think that's Mm. another area where I kind of come at is all of these things are great but we still work in a very bottom line kind of GDP led profit or loss so framing all of these ideas and the means that can either create profit or reduce loss to the clients that I work with and to the communities. You know, if you're saving them money, whether it's better insulation on their homes. I was talking to someone the other day about retrofit on uh, council housing and they've been looking at projects up in the Midlands and the way they're perceiving it is actually it costs £80,000 per unit to retrofit the houses, re-insulate, put some solar in, etc. The offset of that is that the tenant will be paying more per month to repay the debt, but their outgoings on their energy bills will go down. So it's rebalanced. So you're looking at a way of kind of long, long-term proofing some of these solutions that, and I know I've jumped away from low-traffic neighbourhoods, but I think it's a sy- systemic challenge. And if we start to join the dots, break down the silos and all work together, and that may be employing academics and researchers. You know, we do a lot of work with the Centric Lab who are a neuroscience-based lab looking at urban environmental stresses on different communities, mostly marginalised start to undo that we have a healthier community we have a healthier citizenship and if we start to look at that well it's healthy planet healthy people and for those that care it's healthy profit because you can't have that without a healthy
0: healthy society you touched a little bit on meanwhile um and i know you've been working quite heavily on a project called patchworks obviously you're fairly into that now it's quite a Big project to start on and 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 how you've been really heavily involved in it as well i can imagine it's taken quite a bit of your time what have your learnings been about that do you want to tell us a little bit about the project itself it's probably one of the
1: wildest experiments we've ever <laughs> embarked upon as as um, one of the co-founders and and i think you know I, I was involved in the original team for what became pop brixton yeah that evolved and and you know had to obviously have a commercial driver but it ultimately became a, a kind of signifier of the change that was coming rather than the sort of connection to the existing community and So with Patchworks, the opportunity came about. Um, I was introduced to a guy called Warren Menkenrick, who had brokered a deal with a landowner who had a furniture factory. They'd known each other for three generations, both families working in the furniture trade in London, which is quite exciting, still making furniture in London, taking hardwood, sort of raw timber, straight through and making it, selling it to commercial places. And he'd brokered a deal with him to have half the building on a 10-year lease. Another colleague came in from the film production world, so we've got furniture maker, someone from film production and me as a landscape architect ultimately, taking on a 16,500 square foot former warehouse space in Leighton, East London. Okay, we've designed bits, we've all kind of had the ideas of components, but we would never designed a full house, so to speak. We made a lot of interesting uh, decisions, <laughs> let's say, um, but we captivated the community We ultimately opened the door and said, this is your space, what would you do with it? And most people who came in said, can I? And we said yes. We've had everything from yoga by orchestra to menopause events to anti-knife crime to the history of rave culture in Waltham Forest to markets to incubator space. We've worked with people like Neil at the People's Pavilion and Beyond the Box. We've had architects come in. Whatever happens, we go with it. And so the council got behind it. We've basically been fulfilling a empty hole in what we called the missing link of waltham forest clapton layton and walthamstow there's, there's a not lot going on and so we fulfilled that a lot of the community came in and said, this is the first time i've been in a place that's hosted as many people i've never really been around my neighbors like this and we started it sillyly probably um mid lockdown which gave us a year of play around <laughs> to test the water um, we're currently looking at funding from a, a public body but we've done a lot of private investments a lot of blood, sweat and tears and cash from our own pockets. But it's trying to prove concept, give people a a non-stick venue, a kind of living room for Leighton. But, you know, we've we've been trying to think, you know, Patchworks Bristol, Patchworks Birmingham, why not? There's Mm. loads of these empty spaces. It's just setting the financial model. And so we're looking at perhaps reintroducing the furniture making to have kind of a social build so we can get people working and learning how to make furniture in London again. Yeah. And then that would offset the community angle. So we'd try and operate a commercial side for three to four days a week. A lot of film and uh, photography have been interested. We've had inquiries from some of the great and good of the fashion industry. And then through the weekend, it would be community. And ultimately, it would be whatever people wanted it to do. I so.
0: love that. Just, uh, and and, and like, again, it comes back to that sort of test, learn, repeat, test, learn, repeat thing, doesn't it? You See, seem to have quite an interesting connection with fashion. Is that just through your connections... Incidentally, or are they, are they taking more of an interesting landscape all of a sudden?
1: <laughs> I don't know. I've never really kind of drawn... Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I just think design is design and we all kind of work where we yeah. want to work. I yeah. have, have got drawings of a fashion collection in my own sketchbook, but again, it's looking at how sustainable that can be and we've done a lot of work with... or kind of worked alongside also Lode Castro and the guys at Fashion Revolution and it's sort of looking at where our clothes come from. You know, the T-shirt, the white T-shirt, as Mac would always say, is one of the most intensive ways of producing, you know, all the water that goes into making cotton, for instance. But then you've got people like Hyatt down in Cardigan who've re-established the kind of the denim trade, the artisans of kind of the one of the largest denim factories in the in the country. And it's sort of regrown a city. So I think it's coming back to that idea that if we start to invest in these kind of trades or infrastructure, you can grow communities again. Mm. So it's, Mm. it's sort of, for me, it all comes into the same thing. There's no blurring. And why not, you know, take the Rob Hopkins approach of what is to what if. If we use our imaginations, there's endless opportunities. And so
0: let's play I love that you don't just fit in a category I mean that's kind of what I've always fancied for ourselves but then you come back to that same issue you not having a website of like (laughs) how do we tell people what we do and how do you get them excited about it it's tricky isn't it I found it so fascinating really good chat and and I think one thing we just haven't quite had a chance to mention yet was about your theory on Glastonbury planners well I
1: think you know the pandemic response kind of illustrates this better than I'd imagined but we need a kind of rapid response and the Let's say Glastonbury Festival becomes what is the large, the fourth largest city in the southwest of England for a week. And most people go, yeah, but it's hedonism, it's pop music. And you're like, yeah, OK, that is the main draw for most of the people who go. I'm fortunate to get to know Emily. It was slightly over the years and just seeing the way they curate this kind of madcap, but very orchestrated city, effectively, there's a hospital, there's infrastructure, there's water, there's transport, they have their own way of dealing with the planning system, building regulation, all of those things that we see in everyday bureaucracy and design of cities, they have to do.
0: Yeah. You
1: know, there's a banking system, you saw, you know, all the traders, there's an Oxford Street in its own sense, where yeah. market traders yeah. make quite a lot of cash, the yeah. bars make quite a lot of money. And it is driven by a sort of social outcome and the three big charities that they support do benefit well. And I think it hopefully encourages a few people to think differently about the way we live, work and play. But if it is people just having a bit of fun, then great. You know, we all need a break. And after the lockdown, Brexit, the cost of living crisis, if these places can provide that opportunity. But yeah, the science behind it, I think, if if I was to organise a city from scratch... Well, you need the culture and the community. You can't just put up some buildings and then hope. We've seen that over the years Mm. with these kind of dead spaces, these canyons of sort of grey space where people have tried, but build the community first, engage the community that exists, bring them in. And then you'll have such a rich foundation to build all these properties, whether it's workspace, like you guys are doing, Mm. residential, socially driven institutions, you know, we're seeing educational institutions open their doors and become more transparent because they have to. We have to think more adaptively and flexibly about how we become one rather than these kind of closed-door red-line operations.
0: Will, thank you so much. Great place to finish, I think. Thank you very much. Thank you. You've been listening to The Spacecraft Podcast, conversations on how innovative design can transform the workplace environment. This podcast was brought to you by them with host Dan Musgropp.